how books are put together. I'm your host, Holly Dunn, and in today's interview, I'm talking with Lauren Panapinto, who is a woman of many talents and many interests, and I don't have time to list all of them here, but just to name a few, she is a cover designer and art director at Orbit Books, uh, a bit of a sci-fi fantasy nerd, to say the least, and she is involved in projects such as Drawn and Drafted, Muddy Colours, and many, many more. If, if you want to see a full list of all of those, head over to her website, and that will be listed in the show notes. It's well worth a look. So in this interview, we both geek out a little bit about fantasy and books, and we talk about the difference between designing, say, a literary fiction cover and something that fits very clearly into a genre like sci-fi or fantasy. And we also talk about some of the tropes that exist within the genre and why they exist. And it, it's just an all-round great conversation. I had a blast. The only thing I will say is that we did have a few technical issues. So if the conversation seems a little disjointed at times, it's probably because the recording cut out and we had to piece it together a little bit. So apologies for that. Um, but the content is great nonetheless. So without further ado, here is Lauren. Okay, well, I went to School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. And uh, what's what's great about School of Visual Arts is a lot of the teachers are working professionals. So they just kind of hire interns and things right out of the student body. So I started working, my first job in publishing, I worked a couple of jobs uh, at SVA. I worked at MTV and I worked for Perry Ellis, but uh, the job that stuck was I worked for St. Martin's Press as a junior designer under Henry Yee, who I'm sure has had covers on Spine a bunch. And uh, I worked for uh, Michael Starrings at the Griffin Imprint. And then I switched over to Henry Yee to be Henry Yee's assistant at Picador. And that was my first book job. And I learned how to do mechanicals. And I also learned I started doing some front covers. And then about a year, year and a half after that, I got an offer from Doubleday books to go and be their ad promo designer, uh, which was a great learning experience. I worked under John Fontana, who's still the creative director there, and uh, especially closely with Michael Windsor, who's a art director there. That was the era of like all the Dan Brown books, like the Da Vinci Code was just coming out as I started working there. And ad promo design, I think is not necessarily looked down upon, but it's not as glamorous as cover jobs. But you get to learn a ton because you're using, you're kind of picking apart everyone else's files all the time and turning them into promotional material, websites, things like that. So you really get to see how some of the best designers in the world, book designers in the world, like make their files. Some are neater than others. So I worked there for a couple of years as ad promo designer, and then Michael started giving me covers, and I started working with him. He really mentored me and started doing more front covers, and eventually kind of went up the ranks until I was the art director in charge of Doubleday's paperback imprint, which was called Broadway, uh, which I did for a few years. And then in one of those big, like, publishing gigantic shifts, uh, the Broadway imprint was sold to a different publishing company. And my job was kind of eliminated. Uh, so I was actually laid off. But the book publishing world, the book design world being so small, it turned out that a friend of mine who was Keith Hayes at Little Brown Books, uh, who's a wonderful designer and art director, he 
had been working on this like crazy little imprint that came over from the UK, which was Orbit Books, which was a, a sci-fi powerhouse over in the UK, but didn't have uh, a uh, US office. And the publisher had come over, you know, maybe like six or eight months before and had started building a list and Little Brown, originally it was going to be an imprint of Little Brown and the Little Brown designers were was helping Orbit with their covers. But it turned out that Orbit was going to be its own division and uh, since it was going to be its own division, they really needed their own dedicated creative director. So unbeknownst to me, in the middle of getting, while I was in the middle of getting laid off, Keith Hayes was talking to the publisher, Tim Holman, about his friend who would be perfect for the job, who is a gigantic geek, but also an art director in books. And, you know, and then I got laid off. I ended up getting laid off, kind of. Keith called me and was like, I have a job for you. I thought he was talking about a freelance job. It turned out he was talking about a job job. I ended up talking to Tim, the publisher, the next day and then kind of interviewed with him very quickly. And then, like, we just agreed on so many things about um, where we felt genre publishing was going and what covers should look like and what covers we liked and and felt strongly about. And I was kind of like, it, it was it was I used up all my karma in one, in, I feel, in one shot because I was laid off, like, I was laid off, rehired within, like, 48 hours. <laughs> it was fantastic. In in my dream job because I, as much as I love most genres of books and had been working in, um, like, especially at Doubleday, we did everything from fiction to nonfiction to diet books to, to business books to everything. My heart had always been in uh, sci-fi fantasy. It, as a fan and as a I hadn't really worked professionally unless you count a comic book store <laughs> working in a comic book store for a long time but Orbit Books is really the perfect the absolute perfect match for me as I had joked in my interview at Orbit I had already had a tattoo in Elvish and uh, <laughs> I said to the publisher I said to Tim in the middle of the interview I kind of rolled up my sleeve because I was trying to be conservative so I had like you know, like a sweater dress on. And I rolled up my sleeve and I showed him my Elvish tattoo. And I said, look, I said, I'm an art director and I have a tattoo in Elvish. I'm pretty <laughs> much the perfect candidate for this job. I don't think you're going to find somebody geekier at my level of experience. <laughs> so, wow. So, and, and I've been there ever since. So I've, this is my 10th year. I'm just finishing my 10th year at Orbit. Wow. That's such an amazing story. And that yeah. actually was going to be my next question was, what what is your relationship with geekdom and and sci-fi and fantasy were you were you always into reading this genre yeah absolutely absolutely um the first movie i remember seeing was in the theaters return of the jedi and uh i'm an only child and my dad kind of just brought me to a ton of like you know stereotypically guy stuff i think he didn't like not that he didn't realize he had a daughter, but he was like, well, there's no reason that a girl can't come to the baseball card show. And like, you know, at a baseball card show, like, you know, he was kind of into that. There's always comic books. So I got, you know, he would always buy me a Wonder Woman comic book or an X-Men comic book or something like that. So I got into comic books. And then in high school, my high school ended up being down the block from a comic book store. And I worked there because I just hung out there so much that the owner of the store finally asked my mom if I could work because if I was going to be hanging out there so much, I might as well get paid for it. <laughs> and, and I worked there for a couple of years in high school and summers. And then uh, in between semesters a bit while I was still, while I was going to school of visual arts. So I was always into comic books and Star Wars especially is a big fandom for me. Lord of the Rings, Cimmerillion is one of my favorite books, which is why I have an Elvish tattoo. You know, just, I mean, I was just living the geek 
life, even though I was not designing geek books till I went to orbit. But the worlds like really collided. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it does really absolutely sound like a dream job. Yeah, I'm ruined for any other job. If Orbit <laughs> ever decides to, you know, close up shop or, or you know, for some reason get rid of me, I'm, I'm just screwed for regular work. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could come up with something, you know, geeky of, of your own to, to create. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we move on, I just have to ask, what, what does the, the Elvish tattoo say? Oh, it's... <laughs> It's part of the, if, I mean, if you're a fantasy person, uh, it's part of the Aragorn kind of prophecy. It's um, right. all that is glittered, all, all that glitters is not gold. All those who wander are not lost. Beautiful. Um, and, and the real Tolkien nerds uh, will and have often called me out on the fact that the, uh, it should be, and, and I'm, I'm going to show my not proper geek uh, knowledge, not complete geek knowledge here, because the lettering is in Sindarin, low elvish because i like the lettering better but the prophecy should actually be in high elvish so well see that's not, a bit of a dilemma isn't it sort of it's not b- between the designer in you and the the geek in you <laughs> right well the designer one yeah <laughs> as is right really <laughs> yeah absolutely so i mean the job i have at orbit is is a dream job not just because you know, I get to work with all these amazing authors and fantasy books and everything. But, you know, like my first year at Orbit, I started hiring all of these fantasy artists that I had loved for years and years and years and just absolutely idolized. I think my very first season, I hired John Jude Palancar for a cover and I like nearly, you know, psyched myself out like five times. <laughs> calling him. Um, and then I didn't realize I was such a, a noob. Um, dealing with some of the the fantasy artists that I didn't expect him to send an actual oil painting to my desk. Oh, wow. Um, because most people, you know, shoot their own work. But um, John Drew Palancar was still, you know, kind of old school at that time. And he just sent you the painting and then you had to figure out what to do with it. So one day this like big painting just showed up at my desk. And I was like, well, this is wonderful. What do I do with this? <laughs> So most people you work with now, do they tend to work digitally or do you get scans or, I mean, do you still ever get oil paintings arriving on your desk? I don't get the actual oil painting anymore, but it's about 50-50 with the illustrators that I work with who does uh, traditional media and who does uh, digital. It really really is about 50-50. And do people work across both? Uh, Some do. Hmm. A lot of a lot of artists will um, artists like Dando Santos and Sam Weber will get most of the way in paint and then do some lighting effects or you know color effects in digital and then you know they'll, they'll shoot their own work and then they'll put the finishing touches on in digital. So there's often there's a hybrid. Sure, but I mean we especially in the fantasy world where people really do collect the originals. I do counsel artists. Obviously not to change, you know, digital is fine, but original, but traditional pays you twice because mm. then you can, then you sell the original as well. So ah. just my, you know, it has nothing to do with Orbit, but, you know, I do counsel artists to learn to do traditional media if, if they can or if they're called to it in any way, because it really does, um, it doubles your money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a good idea. I hadn't really thought of that before. 
Yeah. Well, one of the other hats that I wear is a co-founder of a little online gallery called Everyday Original. And uh, it's just everydayoriginal.com. And my work partner, uh, Mark Sheff, who's an illustrator and sometimes art director, and I got together and we we were always at conventions. Uh, there's a lot of fantasy art conventions, especially like Ilixcon and Spectrum and, uh, you know, at Comic Cons. And, and there's all this amazing art that comes out of people's portfolios or, you know, out of, you know, they're not the finished pieces, but color studies, small pieces, things like that, that are wonderful collector's items. And I, I love having them. I actually love getting processed pieces and collecting those more so than the finals because it's so much a part of my job. But these things only only came up for sale at conventions if you were at the convention and everything. And I realized, you know, we realized in, you know, when you're a collector, you can, you can get up to collecting very nice prints, but then there's a very big gap between, you know, the most expensive print versus the cheapest original. So what we decided to do was get a group of artists together and uh, kind of pool their fan bases on our site. And there's, and we started with 30 artists, one for every day of the month and they got a day of the month and they had to post a small piece of art under $500 every month on their day of the month. Hence every day original. And it was mostly fantasy artists when it started. It's grown, it's grown a little bit since then into other genres, but it was really just a way to get, uh, you know, these color studies and these cool sketches and these experimental pieces out onto the market for people to collect. Wow. So I'm also, I'm also a bit of a curator too. So, uh, you know, when I, when there's an artist that I think is ready to make the jump from digital to traditional, or at least to start experimenting, I do say that they could be selling things on everyday original. Oh, very cool. So I'm assuming now it's not just one artist every day of the month. Well, we still do that. So we didn't realize at the time that we were making ourselves a bit of a ceiling. There is one piece of art every day that's new, that's under $500. But we also let the artists post. They have their own little galleries within it. So even though it's not the piece of art of the day, they can host other pieces on their sites and they can go up to whatever they want. And then, you know, amount of money. And then um, we also have an auction once a month that's kind of, you know, our, our more popular or more famous or well-known artists, you know, even their sketches, you know, if you ask Mike Mignola from Hellboy to do a piece, you know, even his like pencil scribble is going to be over $500. So, you know, we do things like we have, we have auctions and then that, that allows us to keep some artists in the family. Sometimes they swap out or they go every other month or they have an auction or they have, you know, we, we have a lot of a lot of artists in the, the everyday original family still. So we do kind of grow out of that one one piece a month, uh, one piece a day thing. So very cool. I want to sort of ask you about sci fi and fantasy in general. And mm-hmm. and what makes what makes it special to the people who love it? Because those people who are into sci fi and fantasy are really into sci fi and fantasy. Um, from from experience and oh yeah yeah what 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 do you think it is about about other worlds and uh, dragons and all of this that that is so dear to people's hearts i think the world building is absolutely you know what what draws people in um you know imagining yourself in space or riding a dragon or all of those things but i think what what really sinks into people's souls, what people really, really respond to is um, kind of the hero's journey and how much of an aspect of 
of sci-fi fantasy that is, if you've ever read uh, Joseph Campbell, he breaks down the stages of mythology and all these hero stories, you know, either in Greek mythology or, you know, any mythology all over the world. And if you look at our culture today or, you know, for the last hundred years, perhaps, we're not really making new mythology, but the place that we are making new mythology, it's not in a religious sense, but it's in a sci-fi fantasy sense. You know, human beings need to keep telling myths and creating new myths. And, and that's really what Mary Shelley did with Frankenstein. That is a new myth. And so Star Wars and things like that. And there are variations on a theme. It's the classic hero stories. It's the adventure stories. It's, you know, uh, you know all these archetypes, if you want to get Jungian about it, um, that they're the shape of the stories. We retell it over and over. But as, you know, humankind advances, we have to retell those stories and adapt them to new times. And, and so in a way, sci-fi fantasy is making new myths. And um, that's why I think people are so dedicated to it, because it scratches that itch for for us to tell the hero's journey, which never goes out of style and, and, you know, morality stories, you know, and I think that that's why people keep coming back to sci-fi fantasy. That's certainly why the authors keep coming back to sci-fi fantasy. The best sci-fi fantasy is really the authors using the freedom of sci-fi fantasy to set up the worlds that they need to set up to tell the, the sometimes political, sometimes religious, sometimes moral stories that they need to. If you look at Dune, Dune was, I mean, Frank Herbert was a political journalist before he wrote sci-fi fantasy, and he wrote, he set up the world of Dune to be able to talk about politics and religion and and um, demagogues and things like that. If you look at a more modern writer, Nora Jemison, who's an Orbit author, um, who just won the Hugo three years in, three years in a row, um, is telling a story in a world, you know, where people can magically control earthquakes. But really what she's talking about is motherhood and slavery and racism. But you set up, you're, you're free to set up the world that you need to to tell the story you want to tell. And I think that's why sci-fi fantasy is so powerful. Mm, and in some ways it's easier to relate to those stories when they're outside of the world we know. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, and it, it doesn't feel like you're being sort of, hit over the head with the here is the message of this it, it's a right it's a sort of softer way of of exploring those ideas i think yeah it's a it it talks to your emotions more than it talks to your brain sometimes yeah absolutely you know some people talk about sci-fi fantasy or any genre really as you know kind of lesser than or secondary to literary fiction and things like that and i i absolutely disagree i think you know especially when you look at younger people reading sci-fi fantasy and, and responding to movies, I think you're actually forming the morality of future generations through sci-fi fantasy. So I think it's really important. Yeah, it's interesting you said that about about literary fiction. I, I was having a conversation with somebody about this the other day and you know, arguing my point that because you haven't got the same limitations, I mean, obviously you have to work within limitations of whatever world you're building, but mm. you haven't got those same expectations and you can have dragons and, and mythical creatures and different ideas you can have a matriarchal society and all these kinds of things yeah, um, yeah. But, but because of that you know you, you don't have those same limitations that you do in literary fiction which is usually set in the real world so I don't right. kind of get that that whole idea of literary fiction being better than anything else right or harder I don't mm. I don't think it's harder no, but certainly world building is not harder. My goodness, uh, it's and yeah. and also 
designing, I mean, to bring it back to a design place, I think designing for uh, literary fiction versus genre is 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 very different ball games. I gave a talk at the Type Directors Club last year about this, and the Type Directors Club is, you know, most of the designers, the book designers that come to Book Night are more literary fiction or nonfiction book designers. There's not a lot of uh, genre folks who come. But what so I what I did was a talk on how genre, how designing for sci-fi fantasy or any genre is very different because you're really invent reinventing the wheel because with genre you really have to pay very close attention to what I what what people call genre checkpoints. There's a reason that, you know, a lot of sci-fi fantasy books have a guy with a hood and a sword on the cover. Mm. And the fan base responds to that and but as a designer, you have to figure out a way to do a guy with a hood and a sword at least two or three times a season, every season, over and over again. So, And you have to make it cool, and you have to keep it up to date, and you have to keep on top of trends, and you have to keep pushing the envelope. Whereas with literary fiction, there's not that need to have those genre checkpoints in the same way. Although there are absolutely trends in literary fiction. I mean, handwriting was a super trend for a little while. Um, We see trends go through that. Um, It's not the same. You don't need the same kind of genre checkpoints. So in that Type Directors Club talk, I I had a slide up that was all the covers I had done in 10 years that was just a big sword in the middle of the cover. But you have to keep trying to find ways to redo that cover over and over and over again. So it's a really different game than designing for literary fiction. And you kind of can't, you have to f- see that as a challenge. And I think you have to love the genre or else you, you'd get really sick of it very quickly. Mm, mm, for sure. And, and how do you think it's changed, say, over the past 10 years, the way oh, well, you would design a, a sword or a, a man in a cloak? Well, I think in the last 10 years, especially kind of quote-unquote geek has gone really mainstream, you know, people argue about when exactly it started, but all the superhero movies, the Matrix, the new Star Wars movies, almost every blockbuster now is a sci-fi fantasy movie, whereas it used to just be kind of the geeks and the weirdos that cared about genre stuff. It's really mainstream, and book covers have absolutely adapted to that. So, you know, when Game of Thrones first was coming out, the first season was coming out on HBO, we had to think about what that meant for opening up the fan base to a more mainstream reader base. So a lot of the covers that were for authors that we wanted, you know, that would be good, you know, if everybody blew through all the Game of Thrones books and then looked at, say, Joe Abercrombie or another author that was in the same wheelhouse, we repackaged those books, not to be ripoffs of Game of Thrones, but to look like movie posters, they got very photographic, high def, kind of super saturated, and they looked like movie posters on purpose because that's what the mainstream fans who weren't used to looking at sci-fi fantasy illustration were looking for. They were used to seeing movie posters. They were used to seeing those promo posters for Game of Thrones. So we made the other books that they would like easy to find. Now, 10 years into that trend where everybody knows what a superhero movie poster looks like, Everybody knows there's not so much of a stigma walking around with Game of Thrones or a sci-fi fantasy book on the subway or anything like that. We The pendulum has, has swung back towards illustration in a big way. We can get more abstract now. We can play with it more because the mainstream fans are not resistant to sci-fi fantasy illustration, kind of like they were at the beginning. 
Like they mm. would see sci-fi fantasy or like an illustration of a spaceship and say, oh, that's not for me or a big sword or something like that. And now a lot more mainstream fans are, are going for it in a bigger way. So we, we have a little more freedom to play around. But, but we do follow trends in the, the mainstream world. Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing that I think there's been a, a huge growth in in the past 10 years is young adult literature. And I was wondering how or if that has impacted the way you design for adult fantasy, because there's, there's a lot more crossover now than there used to be. There is. Um, we're very careful in adult sci-fi fantasy to not copy the trends that are in young adult sci-fi fantasy like in young adult sci-fi fantasy you'll see a lot more close-ups of faces i mean it also in, in ya fantasy in ya books in general um there's a lot more close-ups of people's faces whereas in adult books uh the faces tend to be obscured or cropped there's certain kinds of typefaces that we won't use on adult books because they've been so branded as ya books um but at the same time the two do influence each other so, you know, there's a lot of YA, read, YA age folk that read our, you know, adult sci-fi fantasy. And there's a lot of adult sci-fi fantasy fans that read YA fantasy. So when we have one of those books that is definitely appropriate to be a crossover book, we will design them a little closer towards what YA trends look like. But, but on purpose, you know, we won't do that for a book that's wildly inappropriate for teenagers mm. or else we get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Trick anybody? <laughs> no. Yeah, that I guess that's the trouble when you've got you know, these these strict categories, and you want to be able to break out of them to some extent, but you're always somewhat restrained by them. Yeah, and the rule of thumb is too in design, at least in genre design. If you really want something to have mainstream appeal, you do stuff that's more designed as opposed to illustrated or photographed and then because because type design crosses genre boundaries crosses mainstream versus commercial boundaries crosses all kinds of boundaries so if you want to be attractive to the widest possible audience which not every book which not every book should be but the books that are you kind of tend to go for like a really gorgeous cool interesting type design and less pictorial imagery that makes sense um, so I was thinking we, we should probably move on to a few questions about art direction. And you know, you, we've talked briefly about working with illustrators um, mm -hmm. and, and fantasy artists. But as a creative director, obviously, you're having to look out for, for new artists. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, how, how do you go about finding new artists? Is it people approaching you or are you finding artists on Instagram or do you go back to things like deviant art? I, yeah. I, no, I, <laughs> I stay on deviant art. <laughs> um, deviant art, I am glad that it exists. But it's um, sort of had its day. <laughs> well, no, not even. It's just, it's, it's hard to tell on deviant art kind of who did what and whether it's somebody's inspiration folder or their portfolio folder or, or whatnot. I, the 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 fact is it happens both ways. I go to a lot of conventions, specifically art art conventions or conventions with a big sci-fi fantasy art presence like Gen Con, uh, Spectrum, uh, IllixCon. I was just at Artisticon this weekend, which is a new one. And I'm seeing artists come to those conventions and ask for portfolio reviews very early in their careers. You know, maybe a year or two out of school or if they're self-taught, you know, when they're still pretty green. It's common for me to see, to keep an eye on an artist for a couple of years 
until they're ready to work for me. And they'll be doing covers for self-published authors or smaller presses. Usually they'll be working in gaming. They'll be doing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Magic the Gathering cards, stuff like that, until I kind of see... I don't, I mean, there's no one thing that makes somebody ready or not. I've certainly worked with artists that were very, very green and, and just because, you know, I needed their style or I wanted their style. It's, it's more common that I'm watching somebody for a couple of years, either at portfolio reviews or online or a combination for a couple of years until like, because also even if their their work is at the right skill level and it is at the right polish level, like sometimes the right manuscript just doesn't come up for them for a while. When you really love an artist and you really want to work with them and they're absolutely ready uh, to do a book cover, but you just, you don't get the right manuscript in. You're like, <laughs> um, so I always have a bunch of, a whole artist list in the back of my head of people that I'm, I'm hoping to pitch and, and looking to pitch to the editors. So when a, when a manuscript does come in and we decide that it is probably going to be illustrated as opposed to a photo shoot or, or designed completely uh, or type design or with stock art. When we are going to commission an illustrator, then I pitch usually three to five illustrators um, that that all achieve the same kind of thing, but all do it a little differently just to give the editors and the publisher kind of things to play off each other. But we'll decide on one and we'll send it to the author. The send, we'll send the portfolio to the author usually so that they can see and um, hopefully also approve because it's always better when the author is excited about who you're using. And uh, yeah. And then, um, and then, you know, I'll talk to the artist and hopefully, you know, get some thumbnails in a couple of weeks. I send them as much detail as I can, as much of a manuscript as there is. Sometimes there's a manuscript, sometimes there's not. I always pull character designs and scene designs, you know, depending on what the cover is going to be, if it's going to be a character or scene or whatever. I always make sure to pull that out of the manuscript. A lot of the artists will read the manuscript, especially to get the tone, but I don't want them to wait to read the whole thing to get started thinking about it. Sure. Yeah. You know? So I'll pull out descriptions for them and then, you know, we'll start going through thumbnails. Sometimes the first round of thumbnails, there's something great in there. Sometimes we combine a couple thumbnails or we go for a second round of thumbnails. And then depending on their process, a lot of the digital guys will, will jump straight to final or their, their crack at a final because it's so easy to revise. But if people are working in traditional media, then I have them stop and send a lot more steps along the way, even if it's just an iPhone photo of a painting or something, because you don't want to make traditional people go backwards. It doesn't really work that way. So it's better to have more steps approved along the way to make sure that you're not making people redo stuff. Yeah. Especially in oil paint. This is not. Yeah, not my the, goodness. Wow. <laughs> and then it's, it's kind of a game of tennis. When they send thumbnails, I, I already start thinking about the type. And a lot of times I will send them back like a preliminary type idea so that they know kind of what areas to keep. I, not empty, but like less busy mm. set for the type. And then, you know, it, then it goes tennis back and forth and sometimes nailing down the right type design. Even once the art is finalized can take some time too. just trying different stuff that, that works well. Sometimes the title changes a lot. Sometimes suddenly you have to fit like 10 quotes on a cover, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the type design, is that always done by you or somebody at the publisher rather than the artist or does the artist ever do say some lettering that works with the illustration there are freelancers that we hire that i like to call designer illustrators that uh will do both people like will staley who's an amazing illustrator and an amazing designer or people that we hire sometimes specifically to do lettering or type design will do that but usually 
it's not the same person. So the way the orbit team works is, uh, at least on the U.S. side, the U.K. side is a little bit different. But on the U.S. side, I'm the creative director, and then I have a senior designer, Lisa Lisa Marie Pompilio, under me, and she just works on covers. And then I have Crystal Ben, who's our designer, and she works on the mechanicals and some covers, but um, mostly she does the mechanicals uh, for me and Lisa. And Lisa art directs a little bit, but her her strong suit, her her strength is, you know, type design, designing from scratch, designing with stock art, designing with photo shoots. And I tend to be the one that does most of the art direction with the illustrators. And then when the illustration comes in, it kind of depends like whose wheelhouse the, the it's in um, and who's busier if I take it and put type on it or Lisa does. I still get to design a little bit from scratch, but I, a lot of my time is, is tied up in in art direction. So Lisa tends to get the a lot more of the, the straight up design stuff lately. And, and just going back, the um, the thumbnails, how how finished are they? Are they sort of pencil sketches or are they just black and white versions of what the final would look like? It really it really depends on the artist. All the artists have different ways of working. So sometimes it's almost like a pre-thumbnail. It's really just like barely a, a scribble to just kind of nail down what the comp- rough composition is. And then they'll go into a more final drawing and then we'll approve that. And then they'll, you know, keep working on it. And sometimes it's, it just looks like a grayscale version of what the painting is, or what the digital piece or the painting is going to be. So it, it really depends. I have one or two artists that honestly, the way they work, it's just better to they just go straight to final. Like they don't even send a thumbnail. They would rather take a stab at it going all the way to final. And, and honestly, only the digital guys can do this. But it, it they go straight to final and hopefully we don't have major revisions. Yeah, and, but wow. they're willing to do the revisions. One of our big series, uh, the Expanse series, which is actually the TV show now, those books, uh, Daniel Dasiu illustrated for me, and he was, at the time, he was the art director of ArenaNet, so he really only took freelance jobs kind of for fun. And he, he was very short on time, and I really wanted him to work on the cover, so I just thought his aesthetic would be perfect for the, the first book, especially. He turned me down, and I said to him, you know, what can I do to make you take this job? And it wasn't about money for him. He said, he said look, I, I don't have time to do thumbnails and do all that stuff. I'm just going to take a crack at it. And if you like it, great. If you don't like it, then kill it and go with someone else. And I was like, okay. So he sent us this piece and it was 99% of the way there. Honestly, we just had him, you know, change the color a little bit, the color cast a little bit. And it was so perfect. And that became the cover of Leviathan Wakes, which became the first Expanse book, which is now a nine book series, eight book series. It's going to be nine books. And is a show, you know, a really, really popular show on TV now. So Sometimes you get away with that kind of thing. Yeah. And did he do the the covers for the rest of the books? He did. And now it's become such a thing that the authors just give him like a little paragraph. They give us like a little like hint of a story, barely like a line or two, and just let Daniel go crazy with whatever he thinks is looks really cool and awesome and and i love those covers so much but they're so amazing and sometimes they don't match up perfectly with what's in the book but the fans have never minded (laughs) okay wow yeah that that it must be incredible to be at that that point where you can do that and also for you as a as a creative director being able to have somebody that you can trust on that level yeah absolutely i mean you wouldn't trust just any artist with that it's obviously somebody that 
knows their craft, but also knows the business. And the authors have to be trusting too. Like the authors love not not controlling that process and they just have loved all the covers and they love what Daniel comes up with and you know it's it's great all around is there anything in book design in sci-fi fantasy that you would like to see more of uh diversity in characters has been on an upswing which I love like Orbit is at the forefront of uh signing diverse authors telling diverse stories from diverse worlds and by diverse especially fantasy yeah like not um medieval europe based fantasy (laughs) and it's great to work for a house that's really actively looking for those diverse voices because we get to do so much more interesting and uh new territory on covers um and it's been wonderful tours great at that too just to show different kinds of faces on covers and different characters and different cultures lisa is working on a book right now that's a fantasy world based in the caribbean and mm. that's a whole culture neither neither of us have, have designed for that, a fantasy world based in that kind of culture before. And that's super exciting. Yeah, well, so, I wouldn't think there's a lot of that out there. No, and and that's great. I just, uh, I worked, got to work with Carla Ortiz, who's an amazing illustrator, on a cover by Evan Winter uh, called Rage of Dragons that's just coming out in maybe like a month or two. And he describes it as kind of Game of Thrones in Africa, but it's dragons and matters of empire and uh, these this wonderful story from, you know, taken from his heritage in Africa and able to have a person of color illustrator work on that cover. And Carla actually came in with, she was the perfect person for it because she had already done a ton of research into that kind of world and mixing it with sci-fi fantasy because she was one of the concept artists. I was like, well, you've already done all the work. Oh, sorry, we, we, <laughs> so, missed, we missed that last bit. Concept artist. Um, Black Panther. Oh, right. So absolutely, I want that to continue. Diversity of voices and genders. I don't want to call that a trend. I just, I'm glad that that is opening up in sci-fi fantasy, certainly, and want that to continue very much. I don't think giant swords on covers are going to go away. What I would like to see is... The guys in in cloaks and hoods, which has become kind of a joke in the genre, there's a very real reason for that. And that's because people want to insert themselves into the main character. And if their face is obscured, it's easier for them to do that. There's a lot of interesting reasons why YA covers don't feel like they need to do that, but adult covers do. But that's a whole different podcast. Um, But I would love to see more artists figuring out ways to achieve that effect without needing a hood um which would be cool and also i'm always looking for new ways for people to to, to depict magic that isn't like a glowing ball of light i've been seeing some really interesting stuff from there's an artist tommy arnold who does a lot of uh, magic the gathering work but also a lot of book covers and he did something recently on a magic cover that was like a cool like shifting of the piece that that made things look like magic but it almost looked like a I don't know, like a sonic wave rather than magic. I don't know. I'm always looking for interesting ways to depict magic because it comes up a lot. You know, I've seen enough glowy balls of light. I want to I see magic done in different ways or like the implication of magic in different ways. Fair enough. So, yeah. yeah. That, that is definitely a, a difficulty I've come across in you know, doing artwork that's, yeah, sort of fantasy-based. And, yeah, it, it always comes back to sort of specks of light or, or stars or – yeah, something light-based. Yeah, glittering mm. or smoke. Smoke's a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're mm. always. I'm always trying to think of new ways to depict magic, and um, but sometimes it's it's really the illustrators that come up with the great ideas. 
Yeah. Um, sort of going back to the, the YA idea, something I've seen a lot of in, in YA is this more decorative trend, which is where my own work kind of fits, um, sort of things that hark back to uh, illustrators like William Morris and um, more, I guess, uh, late Victorian book bindings. I think the reason for that is there's a lot more fairy tales in YA fantasy. There's a lot more of that. And I think that kind of Victorian touch and, and Art Nouveau touch absolutely mm. um, lends itself to a fairy tale feel. There's a book in the folder I give you um, that uh, we did a fairy tale ask or like more of a folklore book called Sisters of the Winter Wood. And we Such also a good went cover. Yeah, we also went for it. We went uh, with an illustrator named Rebecca Yanovskaya, who is one of those artists I've had my eye on for a couple of years as she developed her style. And that too has, you know, a touch of the, the Art Nouveau, the framework, the the more kind of like crafty, not crafty, but like crafted kind of quality. Mm. Um, but I think that says the shorthand of those styles is fairy tale to readers. And there's a lot more of that in YA than there is an adult. Yeah, that's very true. I actually made a video about on this topic a, a few months ago, and I promptly changed my mind on what I had said. And I got so much <laughs> interesting feedback for people saying that it, it was sort of about the idea that you know it, it seems as though a lot of adult fantasy is designed for a male audience, and the the YA books tend to be more of a female audience, which I think in general is is true. But there's so much nuance within that, and we probably don't have time to go into all yeah. of that. The feedback I got was really interesting, and and especially the way that it's changed over the past, say, fifteen years, and that it used to be that adult fantasy was very much those um this you sort of think of the eighties covers, which are illustrated yeah. and scantily clad ladies, yeah, lots of swords and. Yeah. probably dragons well, there's still lots of sorts <laughs> yeah yeah but the, the way they were presented was quite different it was usually a scene from the book um, right. as, as opposed to something more representational right. well and i think that is a direct response to uh the geek the genre going more mainstream in other media yeah so things do look more movie postery or um more to catch the eye of the casual viewer rather than the fan that's that's looking for the book already because they like the author, mm. you know, I always want to, and that's a fine balance. Like I always want to make the fans, you know, the hardcore fans of either the author or the genre really happy with what's on the cover. But at the same time, if you only sell to the people that are already fans and you never grow the audience for an author. So you're always balancing between keeping the fans happy, but also finding new fans. So, mm. and do you ever do, several different versions and actually publish different versions of the same book to cater for different audiences? Not on purpose. Sometimes we'll put out a hardcover and if we want to try and activate a different audience than the hardcover reach, then we redesign for the paperback. But I think that happens in all book genres. That's not mm. just sci-fi fantasy. Things get redesigned for the paperback version all the time. Yeah. I think to speak to the the gendered thing, I think there have always been a ton of female fans of sci-fi fantasy. Unfortunately, there's a stereotype that, that we're, we're slowly killing off. But if you put a boy on the cover of a book, both girls and guys will read it. If you put a girl on the cover of a book, only girls will read it. Mm. And I don't think that's always true. And I think that's dying off. But I think that that was the going feeling about genre covers for a very long time. Like... 
girls will read books that are designed for boys, but boys won't read books that are designed for girls. And I think that that's not as true in the YA space. And I think that the gender stereotypes are not as rigid. And they certainly aren't as rigid now as they used to be. Also, I mean, especially in the US market, you know, you have a woman, myself being the creative director of Orbit, and you have a woman, the creative director of Tour, Irene Gallo, who's fantastic. So you have a lot of the genre, at least in publishing, being actively controlled, what it looks like by women. So I think that's done a lot to change things. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely enjoying this this change in the way that that books are are designed and um and also just the the different voices that are being heard through through yeah. sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. And and again like I always I always make the the point to say cuz there's been a lot of pushback between Gamergate and and different pushbacks on changes in the industry yeah. or in in depictions. Um and I don't want to derail that whole conversation, you know, derail into that conversation cuz it's not positive. What is cool and what what I go out of my way to say is I have no problem with sexy things or sexy characters or sexy covers assuming it's for the right book, but there's a difference between sexy objectified and sexy with agency. Mm. I write for a blog called Muddy Colors, which uh, is run by Dan Dos Santos, who's a, a very well-known fantasy book cover illustrator. He does he painted all the covers of the Patricia Briggs books and a ton of covers in the genre. And he runs a blog with a lot of uh, mostly fantasy illustrators on them. And I'm kind of like the art director that writes for, for the blog. And I wrote an article called the no stiletto rule. And it's, it's about that because I personally, I don't put stilettos. I don't, I don't let any female character have stilettos on any of my covers because it, it like breaks reality for me because like no woman who fights would ever be in a stiletto. Yeah. Heel, fine. A heeled boot. Fine. But like no stilettos. Come on. Like, let's not be ridiculous. We draw um, the line at agent Carter. Right, right, exactly. Or Wonder Woman, even Wonder Woman got a wedge shield this time around. Yeah. So, you know, like, I'm fine with sexy, but you can do sexy with agency. It doesn't have to be sexy objectified. And what's interesting is you look at a very kind of like the height of, of 80s fantasy covers, 70s and 80s fantasy covers, you look at Frank Rosetta's art, and there's depictions of women that are very scantily clad and very much with agency and in control of the situation. There's also a lot of Frank Rosetta covers that the woman is completely objectified and like wrapped around the guy's leg. But in that article, I use just examples from Frank Rosetta to show the difference between, you know, like sexy with agency and sexy objectified. And I think even just pushing things toward, I think all characters on a cover should have agency, assuming that's what the story is about. And usually it is. So and I don't think that has to be a gendered conversation. But I think that that's, again, that's another thing that's changing as we go through covers. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot more women characters on covers now that are completely badass, but not in a stereotypically like cutesy badass way or like sexualized badass way. Um, I just did a cover with Jeremy Wilson, who's an illustrator for Sam Sykes. And the character on the cover is a woman, but is in like the, like an absolutely a cover that would have absolutely been assumed to have been a guy's pose and layout, you know, even a couple of years ago. So that's very exciting. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Seven Blades in Black. A lot of red swords. Oh, yes. No, this is the one I wanted to talk to you about uh, because there was an amazing, was it on Twitter? Um, you had talked about the story behind this. 
Oh, yeah. Jeremy's one of those artists that I've wanted to work with for years and years and years. I've been seeing him at him at conventions. We figured it out like seven years. All the while his style was developing. Um, but I was I was absolutely ready to use him. I was dying for a book cover for him. And and things would come up and like the strangest things would happen either. You know, the editors would want to go in a different direction. Everybody loved his work in house, but things just kept not working out. You know, other we'd end up going with other illustrators or one time we even put him on a book and then the book didn't the book fell through and the manuscript didn't happen. So many things. It was very frustrating. And then finally, um, just the perfect storm of like the right author, the right artist, the right manuscript came together and it made a beautiful cover. But the way the cover happened was Jeremy had sent out little sample covers. He was so determined to get into book cover work that he was doing samples for his portfolio and the little color studies that he did, he sent to all the book cover art directors like me and Irene. And, and so I had this little thumbnail on my desk. And if you look on, on Twitter, that's, that's the image you're talking about. So I had this little like teeny tiny painting. It was only like three inches tall that Jeremy had sent on my desk. And it was a cloaked female character with swords coming at her from the edges of the, the cover. And I, you know, the editors just got so used to seeing it on my desk. And one day, one of the editors came by that Sam Sykes editor came by and said, I think that is that is that for anything? Did that ever become a piece of art? Because I think that's the perfect cover for what my author just delivered. So we ended up just hiring Jeremy to redo his cover. And it developed a little bit from that thumbnail, you know, from that sketch, but perfect example of like a promo just working. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I read through that that Twitter feed and just thought, wow, that's, that's such a great story. And yeah. such a good lesson to those of us who are out there illustrating things and sort of throwing things out into the void and hoping that something sticks. Right, right. And and sometimes I talk to illustrators a lot, I give a lot of portfolio reviews. And, and it's really hard to believe that you're throwing things into the void, and you're not hearing anything. And they're working without you knowing about it. A lot of times you're just toiling in silence and hoping it's going okay. And then, you know, one day you get the call and you realize that it absolutely did work. Sometimes, you know, that, that long night of silence is yeah. a lot to take. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'd, we'd probably better wrap up very shortly. But I wanted to ask <laughs> you about a couple of other covers. Um, one being the, sure. the N.K. Jemison uh, trilogy, the, the fifth season in particular, because I just think this is such a beautiful cover. It's got that kind of grungy feel to it. And I haven't read this book yet, but it's on, next on my to oh, read list. Oh, so good. They're so good. And, I yeah. mean, it's it's no secret why she's won the Hugo three years in a row for mm. those. So good. Um, well, the the interesting thing about that cover was I started working on that cover before we had a title, before we had anything from Nora, and we didn't have a manuscript. We really didn't have anything. And the book ended up taking a little longer to come out. So, you know, the season that I thought it was going to be in that we were trying to design for ended up not being the season, but I thought I had to work on it, obviously. And we really had nothing. So I just got on the phone with Nora, and she just told me the stories about what she was working on for about two hours. Wow. Um, which was amazing. And she didn't necessarily even have the story completely together yet. But I just kept hearing these, you know, it's, it's the magic, quote unquote, in the world is controlling seismic activities, controlling earthquakes. And the fifth season in that world is the earthquake season. So it's all about these civilizations 
almost like a layer cake of having been ruined by these occasional seasons of like complete and utter earthquake. So I really like, I just wanted it to feel earthy, but also I wanted it to have a hint of civilization, but like ruined civilization. But also I looked through so many images of ruins, but I wanted it to be something that wasn't culturally suggesting any specific earth culture, which is harder than it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what we did for all three books. We tried to really have them be as cultureless as possible, but still have that feeling of like old civilization and ruins. Mm, so, so this image is it a stock image? It is a stock image. So, um, what what did you do anything extra to it? Colored the hell out of it. Yeah, <laughs> really grunged it up. Colored the hell out of it. Then. Um, you know, just I had done a lot more type work to it and we just kept stripping it back and making it look more classic and more classic and, you know, went from a place of, you know, like a, a kind of font that would be etched in stone. But the more simple we made it, the better the cover the cover got. So, And it's got this this real beauty to it. But, yeah, it, it definitely it, it, it echoes that that um, tagline, every age must come to an end. Right, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. you definitely get the feeling that like some shit went down. Yeah. <laughs> like... And the other one I wanted to quickly ask you about was um, The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie, which has just come out. Right. And it's it's got, again, some these decorative elements to it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm not familiar with the blurb of this one. Again, it's one I want to read, but yeah. <laughs> well, um... We're going to have to send you a box from Orbit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so what what was the, the story behind this? So the book is actually about, and this one I got to read a, a, a good chunk of the story treatment. It's a book about gods, but kind of the evolution of gods, like how gods become gods and like how certain civilizations kind of uh, sign up to be like that god's people's. And then like what happens to them? So there's like a raven god and a stone god and a this god and a that god. But the the main story is centered around the raven god's people. So the hence the raven tower. Um, but I wanted this, I wanted something, again, not too different from the, the thinking behind Nora Jemison. I wanted it to feel like an artifact from that world. And I wanted it to feel like if this was the raven tower and it was dedicated to this god, then all of the ornament on that entire tower would have had something to do with ravens, you know, almost like a Gothic cathedral has certain iconography. So um, I was just, but I also wanted to have this like very imposing feel. So the Raven knocker was not part of the door. So that that's about like, that's maybe 10 stock images all kind of artfully Photoshopped together to make a Raven door knocker, which sounds easier than it was, but I just, you know, I was like, I, I didn't, set out to look at it, look for a door but I was trying to think of different things that could imply a tower but also um, you know something we could add uh, raven details to ornaments to so I was looking at you know stone carvings of ravens but then also you know like when you're working on multiple authors in the same house we were like no it can't be stone because we don't want to like tread on Laura Jemison's toes so then I was looking at metalwork and ironwork and how a raven could be worked into metal and iron and I saw this knocker which was not the knocker I ended up using, but I ended up creating that knocker. But I saw a raven knocker with kind of like, remember in Labyrinth when the, the knockers have the, the ring in their mouth? So that was part of the inspiration. And then I just kind of went looking for 
different ravens that we could use and different knockers and kind of put it all together. Yeah, and I love the colors in this as well, the the gold and that <coughs> slight hint of purple. Yeah, it, you know, it's hard to get gold to look like gold on a book cover. Yeah, yeah. It if you're not cheating is. and using foil. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't work online. Foil doesn't work online. No, and, and something like this, you couldn't really use foil, could you? No, you could use like a metallic ink, but it's never mm. quite the same. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's just come out so beautifully. Thank you, thank you. Mm. Where yeah. can people go if they want to find out more about you and all the incredible projects that we haven't even got to talking <laughs> about today? There's a few. Um, well, we were focused on the sci-fi fantasy stuff, mm. so I think we hit all the important stuff there. Um, so orbitbooks.net is a great place to see all of the books coming out from Orbit and all of the covers. All the covers on there I have touched in in some way, even if there are some that are done that are just UK only titles and, and the UK handles those. Uh, but most of the shared titles I work on and the US only, obviously, I work on. Then Muddy Colors is a great blog if you're interested in sci-fi fantasy art. There's a lot of fantastic illustrators that uh, write monthly columns on that site. And Everyday Original we talked about is a cool place to check out mostly fantasy illustrators selling their original work and then for anything else there's a lot of other projects that i haven't gotten a chance to talk to just go to laurenpenapinto.com all the links are there it works on desktops not on mobile because i am a busy creative director and don't get to do <laughs> stuff myself that often but all the links are there so look on a desktop and it'll be fine <laughs> wonderful if you enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts please be sure to rate and review us too. This show is hosted by Holly Dunn and edited by Eric Wilder. Our theme song is Sweetberry Wine by Blue Wednesday. And Spine is a production of Spine Magazine. For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.